Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. I hope you had a safe and enjoyable July 4th holiday weekend and that you Peachtree Road Racers are fully rehydrated. The U.S. isn't the only nation that marks its Independence Day in July. Canada commemorates the anniversary of its Constitution Act each year on July 1st, also known as Canada Day. In honor of our great neighbor to the north, we'll listen back to my interview with comedian Ron James about his memoir, All Over the Map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road. Plus, speaking of music, our series of local musicians in their own words today features jazz artist Tony Hightower. First, a new installation promoting art and safety is on permanent display at the Crossland Tower on the campus of Georgia Tech. Tristan Alhadad, a professor in Georgia Tech School of Architecture and owner of Formation Studio, was commissioned to create the Crossland Chroma Project. The installation surrounding the terraces on the seventh floor of Crossland was designed for aesthetic and safety reasons. Professor Al-Haddad joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Glad to be here. You've been a faculty member at Georgia Tech for 16 years in that renowned architecture school. When creating sculptures, installations, or landscape pieces, what's the balance between artist and engineer for an architect? You know, it, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I, I would say my entire life, my entire career has been a balance between what I would call the conceptual and the technical. And so often we find those two camps not really aligned and, and sometimes not even in dialogue. And mm. so with all of my work, you know, we try to, uh, and when I say we, I mean the royal we, my studio, my team, uh, all the people that contribute to the work. That's another really important part of how we work because we produce all of our own work for the most part in-house. But we, we try to, to constantly have the conceptual and the technical in dialogue informing each other because at the end of the day, ideas without materiality are just ideas. And that's okay too. But the way in which we work and, and what we're really after is the material expression, the material actual, actualization of the idea. And so that requires this constant sort of dialogue between the conceptual ideas, the aesthetic intent, the perceptual intent, and the technical realities of, of making, of the material world, of physics, of wind, of gravity, of all of these things. So, yeah, it's, it's really about a constant kind of dialogue and feedback loop between conceptual intent, 
aspirations and material reality. And material is very important uh, to the practice as well. Trying to tease out ideas directly from materials is something that we're, we're oftentimes uh, trying to do. Sure. So what was the inspiration for the art component of this project? Yeah, so just to, to maybe step back for one second, you know, the way that I describe the, the piece, uh, Crossland Chroma, I describe it as the love child of uh, public art and public safety. The, the art component, I would say it's twofold. On the one hand, the piece is meant to really be a, a perceptual piece, uh, an abstract perceptual piece meant to be experienced, meant, meant to be felt. It's meant to bring uh, a kind of playful delight to the campus. And, you know, I love the campus and I think the campus is continuing to be really one of the outstanding campuses in the United States of higher education. But sometimes it can be a little bit conservative, frankly, and, you know, especially if you look at the history of the campus. And so the piece was meant to really bring this kind of playful delight and bodily experience to being on the terraces and feeling the way in which the light and the views are constantly shifting. That's kind of the, the experiential piece. And then I would say conceptually, what the piece is meant to do, and, and I should describe the piece a little bit before before describing its its meaning. Um, so the piece is made out of 192 what would be called dichroic polycarbonate fins that are twisting 90 degrees from the bottom to the top. And so what that does is that that dichroic material takes the white light from, or let's say the kind of pure light from the, the sun and breaks it into a chromatic spectrum, right? Mm. And so conceptually, what the piece is doing is it's talking about how do we have an incredible range of diverse ideas coming from the idea of, of the library as the body of knowledge, right? So if light is the body of knowledge, then this spectral experience is really the diversity of ideas that is captured within the library. And beyond that, the, the university itself, that we have so much diverse thinking, so much diverse uh, student population and faculty population, that it really becomes a representation of that diversity in the library and the, the university at large. And what about this important safety function? How, how does it serve as a safety barrier for Crossland Tower? The piece is on the seventh floor of the Crossland Tower, which is the part of the, the library, the central library at Georgia Tech. And it's about 100 feet above the ground. So obviously there are safety issues if people can get to the edge. And so the way in which it works, it, it actually has to work as a code compliant guardrail, right? So there were safety codes that we had to comply with, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite difficult to make a sculpture, which is complying with all of these safety codes and also becoming a kind of pure experience. So what it does is at the bottom, these dichroic fins, these dichroic polycarbonate fins are in line and they create a kind of continuous plane up until about 42 inches above the finished floor of the terraces. And so that's a code requirement. And once it goes past that 42 inches, the, the fins start to rotate and twist 90 degrees. So by the time they get to the top, they're perpendicular. And what that does, not only does it create this kind of spectral range that we get as the light passes through these little nanotechnology prisms that you can't really see, right? There's no pigment in the fins at all. It's all, it's all basically nanotechnology, you know, tiny little prisms, if you will. That seem iridescent from what I can glean. Is, is that correct? Almost iridescent, but but really what it is is it's a it's a, a broad range spectral refraction in essence. So you don't get the entire spectral range, but you get basically half of the spectral range. So iridescence is is kind of the the intent, not really the intent, but it's not a bad way to describe it. But it's really a broader range spectral variation as the the, the angle of incidence changes on the fin. And so just to kind of finish the thought about this um, twisting. So what happens is at the bottom, it's a continuous plane and the fins twist 90 degrees to open up to really become almost to kind of dissolve visually and to allow for the view back to Midtown because it's really a spectacular view of Midtown and downtown and then also West Atlanta. So you get this uh, kind of continuous surface at the bottom twisting kind of opening up the apertures to, to allow that view 
back out to the city. Mm. Did Georgia Tech students have a role in any aspect of this structure? Yes, absolutely. So all of my staff working on the project were Georgia Tech students, not at the time, they were either alum or they were working for me during the summer. Um, or actually some of them even worked during the school year when they were in school. So yeah, but, but basically everyone working on the project, they were working as employees for Formations Studio, but they were uh, Georgia Tech either alum or current students. Mm. And what other projects has Formation Studio done around town? So around town, I would say one of the more well-known pieces is a piece called Stealth. And it's just south of the High Museum on 15th Street in front of the Promenade Tower. And it's a a 36-foot tall cast-in-place concrete sculpture, which the way that I would describe it is it's a, a kind of double anamorphic projection, two pure shapes, a rectangle and a hexagon, perspectively intersecting to create kind of unfolded three-dimensional form. And so the intent, and that's all cast in, in this kind of polished black concrete. So the intent is as you move around the piece, it constantly flickers between two-dimensional figure and three-dimensional form. That piece was commissioned by uh, Cousins in 2013, completed in 2015. We've got lots of other smaller pieces around town. I would say another really interesting project that we just finished, we're working on, on a, a piece for the new Hilton hotel next to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. That's going to be a really spectacular piece. But then a piece that we just finished in Minneapolis, which I think would be interesting for your listeners, is a piece called Current Conditions. And this was part of the the new public service building, which is sort of like City Hall Annex, a really fantastic new building designed by Henning Larson out of New York. And the piece is 100 foot long by 20 feet wide, suspended from the ceiling, a series of catenary or kind of hanging chain elements, if you will, and the piece is responding to weather conditions. So basically, as weather conditions are changing, temperature and relative humidity, the entire shape and form of the piece is changing. And so it's it's a beautiful piece on its own, just from a formal perspective, but it's really meant to act as a a kind of didactic piece for the citizenry of Minneapolis and, and to talk about our role as stewards of the environment, everyone's role, every citizen's role as stewards of the environment to become more kind of hyper aware of what's going on with climate and with the environment. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the, the, you know, really one of the fun pieces we just finished. And, you know, a lot of technology going into that with kind of custom microcontrollers to change the position of all of these pieces and uh, lighting, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. a lot of fun we just finished that piece. And back to Crossland Tower and Crossland Chroma, When you were approached to spearhead the project, how did it feel to know that your creation would be a permanent part of Georgia Tech? Yeah, it's kind of a little maybe daunting, if you will. Um, I have (laughs) been at Georgia Tech since 1996, first as a student and then as a faculty member. So I've been there a very long time. I'm very intimate with the campus. I've seen the campus transform over the last 25 years, the last quarter century, and especially that building, the library, which I have a very long and kind of intimate relationship with, and especially Crossland Tower, which used to be the book stacks. And so I remember, you know, many, many years ago, kind of roaming through the book stacks, looking through, you know, looking for this book or that book, or even just finding the book randomly, right, which is really the pleasure of walking through the book stacks. And that's all gone away now. You know, the library as a, as a typology has transformed. There aren't really that many books in the library anymore. Really, the library is a, a place to share thoughts, share ideas. And again, that goes back to the idea of this diverse range of ideas uh, and this diverse range of knowledge that Cross and Chroma is kind of expressing. But it's been really interesting to see the campus transform over the years and now to be part of that and to have a permanent piece Uh, especially such a a kind of vibrant, prominent piece at the top of the library, which sits, you know, kind of adjacent to Tech Tower and and all of that. It's it's really very satisfying. And uh, it's been a very fun project. Working with the team, too, at Georgia Tech has been great. You know, they they had a a vision as well. And uh, they had a lot of ambition and I would say courage to take on such a project, which, you know, wouldn't always be the case. But 
I think Dean Sharp, who's Dean of Libraries, was incredibly supportive. Uh, and then all of the, the folks at facilities were super supportive of the project. Tristan Al-Haddad, a Georgia Tech professor in the School of Architecture and owner of Formation Studio. You can see his permanent installation, the Crossland Chroma Project, around the terraces on the seventh floor of Crossland Tower at Georgia Tech. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, comedian Ron James tells us about his memoir, All Over the Map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. I hope everyone had a safe and enjoyable July 4th weekend. Did you know that the United States is not the only country marking its independence in July? Canada commemorates the anniversary of its Constitution Act each year on July 1st, also known as Canada Day. In honor of our neighbors to the north, Let's listen back to my conversation with the Canadian comedian Ron James when his memoir, All Over the Map, was released last fall. He joined me via Zoom and explained the impact of his time with Second City in Toronto on his comedic path. It gave me standards. It was a great place to step into. I graduated with a BA in history. Like everybody, you know, trying to break into the business, you, you do Joe jobs for about a year or two. But what I did was I found a family and we were on the road playing all points of frontier with dealing with whatever fury mother nature was throwing our way all through the wintertime. We coalesced into, uh, as I said in the, uh, in the book, I said the only difference between six actors, a stage manager and piano player in a van uh, between us and German submariners in Das Boot <laughs> is that we weren't speaking German. It was uh, a great time to be uh, young and doing what you were meant to do. And then when we got promoted to main stage, the pressure became different. You know, there was always movie stars dropping in to see you if they were shooting movies. You were constantly being measured against the standards of our own idols on uh, SCTV. It, it didn't seem to be as much fun. The freedom wasn't quite there. There was always a, a standard or a box one had to fit into. When I left Second City, well, I stayed with them, you know, and uh, I, I worked with them in Los Angeles when they were there in Santa Monica. And uh, it was a very interesting time. It was always a challenge. But what frustrated me about Second City was your ideas always had to be filtered through five other people and had to be sanctioned through them before they hit the stage. It depended on the political balance backstage as much as it did the talent on stage. Hmm. And as I said in the book, I said an improv group is the same as six Bolsheviks on a communist farm trying to decide the color of a tractor where a stand-up is an enlightened dictatorship. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed the structure of stand-up. I enjoyed the beginning, middle, and an end of a joke. I enjoyed being in control of my words and making sense of the world on my own terms. And so that's a roundabout way of saying I decided to follow my bliss and embrace the mysteries of people and place in my nation of origin, rather than chase this moving target of the Hollywood grail that so few people grab, really. And so the book is a celebration 
of those who fly below the red carpet radar, who haven't grabbed the grail, but who have answered the calling of this wonderful art form, whose satisfactions for me have built me a home and a little place in Nova Scotia by the sea where I'm from and put both my daughters through university. And so what it did was it, it reinforced the fundamental values of just living your life and doing the best that you can with what you've been given. In recent months, my husband and I watched, get ready for it, Ron, <laughs> all 14 seasons of Murdoch Mysteries. <laughs> See, I made the comedian laugh. Oh boy, but, that's quite a commitment. Oh, well, we were hooked. Well, that's a lot this, of mutton chops and long dresses to get through, I'll tell you that. I loved every minute. We <laughs> yeah, both a, did. Yeah, that's an outstanding and, show, and the people on it are excellent. Well, this is part of what I wanted to talk with you about. Here's this delightful detective series set in Toronto at the dawn of the 20th century. And aside from a few guest appearances by Colin Mockery, we did not know any of the actors. And I wondered why because Canada has such a rich tradition of acting. Now, reading about your choice to build a career in Canada, I thought back to Murdoch and realized how terribly U.S.-centric my response was. Does it annoy you that people in the U.S. are largely unaware of your country's vastness and all it contains? Well, I think it's always been a bugaboo with us. And it was only exasperated when the, um, the dysfunctional POTUS you had to deal with over the last few years it seemed to aggravate that. But, you know, Canada's always had this inferiority complex. As I say, you know, 82% of our population live so close to the American border, we're practically looking up Lady Liberty's dress. <laughs> I love that and the, the American woman's siren song has mighty magical juju, Lois. And the lure of America and the standard and the bottomless pockets that are available to make the kind of shows you want with a population of 375 million or more it's remarkable when you see how great it can be done there. And yet you look at Murdoch Mysteries and Schitt's Creek, which cleaned up on the Emmys last year, that it can be done here. I think Canadians are, are finally coming to the realization that we can make our own kind of shows with our own kind of tone and appeal that may not necessarily mimic the American style of entertainment. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I created two television series in Canada myself. Uh, the first one was Black Fly, which I starred in for two years. And the other one was my own show, The Ron James Show. And it's a Herculean task to keep all those plates spinning at once while you're riding the trajectory of a rocket. And so many planets have to line up to make sure that everybody is taking the ship in the same direction. So for a show like Murdoch and Schitt's Creek, the testimony and the credit has to go to not only the stars, uh, but the writers and the production team and uh, the network who got behind it full force. Yes. Just for Laughs is the International Comedy Festival in Quebec. Yeah, it's in Montreal. Uh, everybody who's anybody is there. The opportunity in Montreal is great. Everyone thought they'd catch lightning in a bottle and suddenly be whisked into the Warner Brothers lot where you'd kick a bag of money around and invent television shows, you know, and be in the company of perpetually carcinogenically tanned managers and handlers from Los Angeles who knew so much about comedy, they never laughed. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I struck out on my own and I started writing my own one hour specials. I did nine of those and they were on New Year's Eve. I was able to 
take a look at, a, at America and Canada and have universal content. And uh, that's a great goal for Canada to shoot for, you know, because you've got such a huge audience and to export your shows, really, it's the only way you make money. You're right that the likes of Richard Pryor or George Carlin could not have developed in your country. Absolutely. Why? Because uh, there was no deference for the rebel voice. There was no deference for tipping the apple cart. And I liken it to the origin stories of both countries. I mean, you were sired by the smoke and fire of revolution in 1776 when um, yeoman farmers put the boots to uh, a professional British army and gave them the boot, they sired a suspicion of authority. You know, as I say, Canada's birth was a delivery from the womb of Mother Britain, while America's was a crack baby breech birth that chewed off its own umbilical cord. <laughs> Just so totally different. And so poetic. You put it so poetically. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. I love language. But there's another reason, too. You know, America always took its issues to the streets. There was always a level of efficacy in America that that the people could uh, have an effect and they were entitled to have an effect on the political process. And of course, you know, Canada's motto is peace, order and good government which basically translates to have fun, keep the noise down, and we'll call the cops. Where <laughs> but America's, it's not a police state. It's not a police state, I know. Or better yet, instead of call the cops, we'll tell your father. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a little fairer, yeah. you know? Uh, where America's is life, lyric, and pursuit of happiness, which, <laughs> I mean, if you want to get garish, it's like hookers and blow this way, bro. It's, uh, it's a total different spin on the self, Okay. And I'm not saying you're better, I'm not saying we're worse, but I think the right of the individual to construct his own reality, particularly in comedy, has a larger audience to appeal to there. Mind you, also that individualism has become contorted over the last five years and particularly during COVID because when me trumps we, everybody loses. In the early days when Pryor and Carlin were coming of age and Billy Conley as well and in Britain, we had no independent equivalent of HBO. So you could only rock the apple cart so much. In a country with 375 million people south of the border, you can have half your nation not enjoying your act in the least and still have six times the population of Canada thinking you're, um, you're doing a great job. Mm. It also underscores that tens of millions of us who believe in vaccinations and the common good can exist in a bubble with so many others and, and never meet any of those folks who support political views or societal views we don't share. So, yeah. But the individualism, it's a double-edged sword. It sure is. You know, I have to tell you, I, when I was a kid, I used to camp with my family in northern Nova Scotia. My dad was a phone company man, and he had this Eaton's True Line tent trailer. It's a department store in Canada where you weren't allowed to touch the canvas walls of when it was raining or it would leak. You know, of course, I had ADHD, and well, that's what they call it now, ADHD. Back then, they called it, uh, boy, there's something wrong with him. But... Uh, I'll never forget, it was during uh, the summer that America took one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, a tumultuous era of, of conflict and collision and generational polarities. And I was a wide-eyed 11-year-old kid. And I'll never forget when America pulled into the campground driving a 60-foot chrome-plated hermetically sealed Airstream living unit. I remember looking at it and thinking, oh, my God, it's the Jetsons. <laughs> they invited us over that night to watch the moon landing. They gave the kids a tray of grape tang, grape tang. I'm going to tell you, Lois, I hadn't even seen the orange stuff yet. And they plugged a color TV into the side of their Airstream trailer 
and we watched America take one giant leap for mankind. How cool was that? They could plug a color TV into the side of their trailer, and I wasn't even allowed to touch the canvas walls of mine. And that vision stayed with me for a long time. We would meet Americans. They were up there. Uh, there was an awful lot of draft dodgers seeking sanctuary in northern Cape Breton in those days. I guess the Clyburn Brook had a healthier ring than the Mekong Delta. You know, the roads were filled with knapsack tie-dye travelers. It was also a, um, an end of the road for people who'd thrown their thumb to the merciful hum of the highway as well as the affluence that came to summer at the iconic Celtic Lodge on this promontory of a hill that once was owned by an Ohio rubber baron, and it looked like the hotel in The Shining. But I would watch people who personified post-war prosperity at its finest step out of their uh, avocado Oldsmobiles and Delta 88s and Cadillacs with their wives in uh, caramel tanned legs and tennis skirts and, and men with this magnanimous stride and this wonderful welcome to their generosity. And that was an image of America that stayed with me too. It brought me to California a long, long time ago. And when I meet your people who come to canoe our great and beautiful Northern rivers, we always have a common bond, which is a love of frontier and a love of nature. And I think that that carries through my book uh, very strongly. It does. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is Canadian comedian Ron James. We've been discussing his memoir, all over the map. Reading the book gave me the feeling that I was listening to your stand-up. Oh, boy. As though you were simply performing it for me. And as an example, I was hoping you would read page 28, paragraph 2, to the top of page 29. Absolutely. The IRS has an elephant's memory and a fearsome reputation for pursuing their quarry with a Nazi hunter zeal. Simon Weisenthal with a team of Mossad agents and a list of residents with German last names at an old folks home in a hidden corner of Paraguay couldn't hold a candle to the dedicated hitmen of Washington's tax department when they were hell bent on retribution. Not gonna lie, a little shiver still goes up my spine every time I hand my passport to an American customs agent. <laughs> I'm worried my long gone tax infraction will show up in their computer screen and I'll be whisked into a soundproof room on the wrong side of Toronto's Pearson Airport for a pistol whipping courtesy of Homeland Security. That portion about the IRS and your fear of Homeland Security was brilliant. And then, I don't know, you don't even pivot. You just go on with your life. And that is this book. You just go on with your life. May I just indulge now that you've got me on a roll so we don't leave on that little sad note. Can I read you this one? Please do. Okay. When I first hit the road, the tech revolution was in its infancy, and it took me a while to get on board. After all, I'm from a day where a hashtag was something you got from doing hash knives. Not to disparage social media entirely, because I enjoy sharing photos on Instagram of meals I've made, rivers I've run, hikes I've taken, and tomatoes I've grown. But I still don't know why. I don't know why it matters that someone in Salmon Arm, British Columbia, likes the garden I planted on the deck of my Toronto condo. But the dopamine it releases in the brain's pleasure center does a great job of making me believe it should. Hmm, pleasure center. Sounds like a sex club in Berlin where you'd catch chlamydia, COVID-19, Zika virus, SARS, Ebola, and a bad case of Bactrian camel ass rash just by ringing the doorbell. Out of curiosity, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was laughing out loud with that, too. Anyway, there's 275 pages, Lois, that covers many, many topics. You know, it covers the journey. That's really what it is. It's, it's all about the price you pay for following your bliss and the memories you accumulate in a life lived. You write about hockey and say that 
for a country known for saying sorry, or as you say, lovely, sorry too much. We never apologize for loving the violent sport of hockey. No, we sure don't. I mean, that's why I had to marvel when a baseball player will be out for six weeks because he's got a hangnail, right? Sidney Crosby got hit in the face with a 75 mile an hour puck a few years ago uh, that reconstructed his noggin. I mean, it was on par with a civil war wound and he went on to win the Stanley Cup later that year. But hockey in itself, I mean, it's become a rich man's sport. But growing up as kids, when the lakes would freeze and everybody in northern states, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and anyone who's ever skated on frozen ponds and such knows that that is how you commune with the eternal. They say that smell is the strongest of the five senses. But for me, hearing your hockey skates cut into the ice of a frozen pond on a perfectly crystal clear day with a lump-free, bump-free ice surface. You'd swear that elves had zambonied it smooth the night before. It just harkens back to those days when you were 14 years old and playing shinny on Chocolate Lake on a beautiful sunny Sunday afternoon when the day cast shadows long as life itself and all our gods were the same. <laughs> That was a beautiful portion. Thank you. When we get to British Columbia in the book, readers have been across most of the Canadian map, and you discuss a serious topic, a tragic one, the treatment of Indigenous people. This is a shame both our countries share. Yeah, it sure is. Indigenous people cross paths with me. We just happen to cross paths, and so many people never really get to interact. And uh, I wrote the story about giving Vern Cardinal a lift, who was stranded at the gas pumps in Airdrie, Alberta, uh, who was from a little corner close to northern BC. I wrote it a year before the graves were found in the residential schools. I went on a caribou hunt in Northwest Territories. I joined them. I wasn't hunting, but it was when I was kayaking up there with my daughter, uh, three hours north of Yellowknife, and the chap who was guiding an elder Dene man who wanted to get a caribou for a potluck supper at Fort Resolution on this vast expanse of tabula rasa. And we sat behind a billion-year-old boulder that was dropped by some glacier <laughs> who knows when. And uh, he told me of his life, the same as the indigenous kid who I talked to at the Starbucks in Northern Saskatchewan, the same as, as Vern, who told me about his life when I gave him a lift. It was a year before it happened, and he told me he was a 60-scoop kid, and that's when the government had been trying to um, disavow themselves of responsibility for the residential school system, which was based on the Carlisle school system as well. And in America, which I believe started uh, in the 1860s. You know, the circle had been broken for years for Indigenous people, and now it's closing, and empowerment is with them now, and it behooves Canadians and Americans to understand uh, the role that settler privilege and the colonial mandate had in the attempt of crushing their will and what really has been defined as cultural genocide. If I could indulge you a minute here, I'd like to read this little passage about the gentleman who was responsible for the uh, administration of the residential schools in Canada. It's just about a paragraph or so. It's one thing to know that Canada's Indian Act is a draconian document of colonial oppression responsible for the cultural genocide perpetrated by the paternalistic mandate of successive governments upon generations of Indigenous people. It's something else entirely to have a casualty of that patriarching sitting in the back seat of your car yelling. On a canoe trip down the Nahaini River several summers ago in Canada's Northwest Territories, I met an enlightened couple from Pemberton, British Columbia, whose family had farmed 800 acres for several generations, not far from the affluent and internationally renowned ski resort of Whistler. The property was also close to a First Nations reserve suffering under squalid conditions, 
and this farmer employed as many of the residents as he could, making a point to give a lift to any he saw hitchhiking. It's my contribution to reconciliation. It's every Canadian's moral duty to do what they can if given an opportunity, he said. Well, maybe giving Vern a lift was mine. So not funny stuff, and it wasn't intended to be funny. But what I wanted to do in that particular short story was juxtapose the reality of, and I use the context of being in a second city scene where you never bail on a scene. Once I decided to give this chap a three hour lift up the road, I stayed with it. He told me he'd lost his keys. He told me that he had to get to his nephew's place. He told me that he messed up. His buddy Hugh had given him a job at the community center and he couldn't remember these phone numbers. And there was just something honest about his story. It, it didn't seem fictional. I trusted him. Would you explain your statement? A stage with only a microphone is freedom made manifest. Well, it is, it's, it's not held down by the, the guy wires of, of television's corporate structure. It's taking flight. It's, it's the life force personified. And that doesn't mean that it's bereft of responsibility either, Lois. If you take the stage to perform for two hours, it's a symbiotic relationship between the comedian and the audience. We need each other. And I think the trust that a comedian has in his content reflects the audience's faith in the performance. And that was one thing that I never really felt in Second City was that genuine freedom of flying where you can feel the wind just lift you. I can use as many metaphors as I wish. It's like riding that great wave, playing the pause, enjoying the moment. It's nobody telling you how it has to be done. You've discovered yourself through trial and error uh, through the many crucibles you experience with this calling, what you have to do to deliver what the audience is paid to see. And I recall those nights when I'd spoken for two hours and I come off stage and I can't remember what I said. You're just in the pocket and they explode from the seats with a great round of applause. And you know, you've done an honest day's work but the freedom that one experiences with that microphone on stage and nothing more than a glass of water on a stool, for me, it's as good as it gets. Canadian comedian Ron James from our conversation in October. More information about his memoir, All Over the Map, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. Coming up, our series Speaking of Music, where we hear from local musicians in their own words. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hello, hello. What's happening? My name is Tony Hightower. And um, I guess I would describe my music as definitely jazz, but I know it's influenced by lots of different genres. R&B, blues, funk, you hear some of that in my rendition. And all my life, it's never felt like this. I lost my heart. Now I'm in a tailspin. Yeah. Uh, I guess I got started in music from the womb. <laughs> My mom, Theresa Hightower, was an incredible singer and performer, and that's what she did professionally, and she did it with me in her belly. My actual career 
started when I was about 14. I did my first gig uh, playing drums. It was kind of like I was always around it, so it was something that I loved, and it was something I knew I wanted to do with my life. Good God, to see her face, I long to hear her voice. I call Atlanta home because it's home, baby. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a native of Atlanta. I'm born and raised in southwest Atlanta. I've uh, visited many, many places, and I, I, you know, I think of having some places somewhere else. I would like a place on some water and, and somewhere abroad, but I think Atlanta will always be home. I love Atlanta. I love my city, and it absolutely inspires me. It's part of what has made me who I am. Uh, so I love it from you know the southern drawl to the musical influences here. I mean, it all inspires me. I like to hear music wherever it is. I mean, you know, live music. Um, but there's a place in um, Atlanta right now called uh, 10 ATL in Atlanta, man. It's one of the most happening uh, jazz hangs in the city. I love going there on Monday nights to hear the jam session led by Larry Wilson. And then um, I do a jam session with my friend Terrence Harper every Thursday at this place called the Hill Social. That's a great time. But I like, I mean, there's so many places in the city. I love to hear it, but I love to go out, out of the city as well. Wherever good music is, I'd love to be there checking it out. to the good is a song that's absolutely dedicated to my mom I wrote it you know in the wake of my mom's passing and um, it's just my true feelings the sorrow but the new outlook on life and hope As I said before, this is um, dedicated and inspired by my mom. My mom was an incredible performer, singer. She was just an incredible talent, and um, most of what I know how to do um, um, what I am I owe to her she was in, she was just incredible this is a body of work of songs I've written uh, it's not all about her but it's about keeping the legacy alive the reason I understand jazz and I and I um, I love it is because of the things she played around me and and the, the scenes I was immersed in so um, I just want to pay homage to her and keep things moving along in high tower fashion can't pretend that there's nothing there. Girl, I look in your eyes and I see you care. So why don't you stop trying to run and hide? Oh, won't find out if you never try. I have a show coming up, and it's St. James Live with my good friend Larry Wilson on July the 6th. And I'll be on that with uh, Brenda Nicole Moore. She's dope, dope, dope. Check her out. My new record is now Legacy. Check that out. 
And um, also check out my last record. It's called The New Standards. And I think you'll dig them both. I hope anyway. Jazz musician Tony Hightower and our series Speaking of Music. Hightower is playing tomorrow night, July 6th, at St. James Live with Brenda Nicole Moore. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Atlanta Children's Film Festival. The 15th annual event starts Thursday and runs through July 24. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.